Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Brian Sansbury, CEO of Aegis Hedging, who talks all things hedging in the oil and gas space, including common misconceptions around hedging from minerals and non-op companies, how to consider debt around a hedging program, and how hedging plays into the transactional space. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Brian had to say. All right, Brian, good afternoon and welcome onto the podcast. Thanks for, for coming. Well, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Appreciate it, Tim. So I'm really excited to to kind of dive in and talk all things hedging as it relates to non-op and minerals. Before doing that, just set the stage yourself personally. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And then what is your your skill set? Uh, are you a an ops guy, a finance guy? Uh, are you a, a tech guy? Um, set the stage. We'll talk about Aegis and then we'll jump in. It's over to you. Okay, sounds great. Uh, so I grew up in a little town outside of Atlanta called Dilburn, Georgia. Oil and gas was not necessarily on my, uh, you know, on my mind coming out of uh, out of Lilburn. I uh, played baseball at a little school in Rome, Georgia called Barry College. That's what that's what sent me up there. Most people haven't haven't heard of Barry nor Rome. Studied uh, finance while I was while I was there. A real interesting place to go to school. You know, little known fact, it's the largest uh, largest campus in the world. Uh, twenty seven thousand acres, yeah, but only tw- only yeah only twenty two hundred students. So uh, makes for a unique unique education. Really really close with uh, professors. You know, terrific sort of really work based education. You know, came out of out of school there and started it with a company called uh, Hewitt Associates as my first job out of school and and left there. Twenty two years later, you know, went from entry level analyst to uh, president of the company and, and and held a number of positions. You know, from COO to CIO, et cetera. So we'll come back to that and skill sets here in a second. But but really, that business, you know, Hewitt Associates was very much an advisory business when I joined in nineteen ninety five. Around everything HR and benefits, which has which has no correlation with with hedging necessarily. Um, but what was unique about it was that it was an advisory business where our customers were asking us to build the technology and operations around running these programs. So if you think about, you know, we were an actuarial consulting firm, compensation consulting, benefits consulting, et cetera, and they needed technology and call centers and all sorts of things that were just new and different in the mid nineties when I joined and, and we spent the next you know 22 years building that business out into, you know, from basically nothing to 20,000 people and two and a half billion dollars in revenue and running the technology behind most of the fortune 500 companies. And, you know, ultimately business was acquired by Aon and we spun that business, you know, out and sold it to Blackstone in 2017. So really went from core advisory business to really large tech enabled services business. Now, a friend of mine and still with, with Aegis, Chris Kroom, actually a dear friend of mine, you know, as I was moving to Chicago and, you know, t- taking some time away on, on vacation, he had an idea about getting a company started in the hedge advisory business at the time in 2013. And, you know, smartly, I decided to back him on that venture. You know, he, he operated it for four years and, you know, built up the core of it. And then I had the opportunity when I when I left upon the sale of a light to Blackstone uh, to join the company full-time. And we'll, we'll talk more about where the company went from there, but just a really unique opportunity. So 
the short answer to your question was no, my my background wasn't necessarily in oil and gas nor hedging, though I majored in finance. I was really more of an operator and, and technology person at heart. And that's really the skill sets that I think I brought to the table. And now since in the last seven years since I've been here or six years since I've been here, really fallen in love with the oil and gas industry and just see so much, uh, so much opportunity. Phenomenal. And give a little background, I guess, the origin story of Aegis. I didn't know you knew Chris, that makes sense. That's how you're involved, but you were a seed investor. So when did he just start? What was the original mission statement and ethos of the company? And it, it's really evolved and grown quite a bit. You guys do stuff outside of oil and gas, right? So we do. Yes. Yeah, so in, in um, I think that was July of 2013 was the first time we talked about Aegis as, I mean, Chris knew the space incredibly well. And um, you know, we, we had this core thesis that, you know, really simply that oil and gas companies looking to hedge their commercial risk needed to do that through derivative positions, swaps. And in those posi- in negotiating those positions, they were facing off with Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and all sorts of really sophisticated dealers. And that wasn't a really a fair fight. Not that it was meant to be a fight, but we needed, you know, someone needed to sit in inside those transactions and make sure it was the you know, right kind of structure for the right tenor at the right price, et cetera. And so our core belief still today is that, you know, we provide tremendous value in helping people achieve the right structure, right price for the right time frame. Our mission, though, over time has evolved into something really simple. And, and we think about this as protecting profits for any company with exposure to commodity prices. And so if you think about oil and gas companies, you know, their biggest risk to profits is what they're getting paid for all those molecules that they are selling. If you think about a manufacturer, they are, you know, they are exposed to the input prices on, on commodities, whether that be aluminum or steel or, you know, agricultural products, et cetera. A transportation company is exposed to the cost of diesel and gasoline and uh, jet fuel, et cetera. And so that is, you know, our business is all about helping those companies protect profits. Those are the big, the the big industries that that we serve today. But make no mistake, our core is is in oil and gas. Um, we work with over 400 oil and gas producers, non-ops, minerals and royalties companies. So, you know, while we are involved in the other markets, um, those are those are new and growing for us. And our, our core will always be in the energy markets. Yeah, and traditionally, this type of business was really more of a hands-on advisory consulting business, similar to Hewitt, then evolved into a technology company. You guys have done the same. I remember, yeah, as I mentioned offline, Rob Vaya, who runs your energy group or energy vertical, I should say, is a good friend of mine. And when he first got in, it was very much that kind of consulting advisory type bent of service. And now it's very much backstopped by a technology interface. So talk to me about that's probably where your skill set and background is. 100 percent uh a fit to scale right that well th- thank you for saying that that that's kind but yeah yes when i joined in uh, october of 2017 chris justin the whole team here had had done a, a tremendous job on getting the business up and running you know many clients and you know i saw it from a bit of a different angle coming in you know just coming in from outside the industry and saw a great advisory business that really in a in an industry that was starved for technology investment. And so, you know, it, it was almost running the exact same playbook that we had that we had seen, you know, happen within Hewitt. Started off with some basic, you know, reporting, just how do we how do we get things out to customers in a in a simpler and more efficient way? That's evolved into a hedging marketplace. It's evolved into really sophisticated workflows and hedge recommendation algorithms and all sorts of fun things that we that we differentiated on. 
today. But pulling back, thinking about, you know, lots of businesses have these core commodity trading and risk management platforms that store and value positions, both physical and financial, for lack of a better word. That that road has been traveled, you know, pretty well. I mean, there's there's many folks out there. Um, and we wanted to build everything around that that would allow uh, our users to operate a hedge management program front to back. And that meant distributing research um, and analytics. It meant providing benchmarks or, or in the industry. It meant you know providing trade recommendations that were based in math and uh, allowing folks to to model you know model outcomes of hedges. You know we wanted to bring indications online because you know th- you know th- there's nothing nothing that allows someone to front run a price more than you know asking a bank where they would be on a price for a certain structure you know tenor you know for a known producer. Yeah, we wanted to build a hedging marketplace that you know, that would allow that would allow people to transact on a single screen and get away from this sort of text-based negotiation of hedges. We wanted to enable the back office and you know ingest confirmations and settlements and match them up to trades and allow them to do more straight-through processing. Yeah, so these weren't things specific to hedging necessarily. They were just really good applications for technology and allowed me to to really sit alongside people who were very experienced and knowledgeable in the derivative space and and um, help to build our company in a more, more well-rounded offer. Phenomenal. So let's dive in now, now that the, the stage has been set. My audience is minerals and non-op executives. So I'd love to dive into the weeds from a, from a hedging perspective on minerals and non-op. Let's start with how Aegis has seen the appetite for hedging evolve in recent years for minerals and non-op companies. I mean, you know, when I, the way I look at it is that Minerals start to become institutionalized around 2013, 14. That's really when I started to follow the space. And you know, fast forward 10 years, why I have my own firm is the cottage industry around it. Private equity starts to come in, large insurance companies and pensions go direct, public companies start to form. So, you know, these are types of capital that are used to hedging programs in upstream companies and they're used to scale, right? And when you start getting bank debt involved in minerals or non-op transactions, there's usually hedging requirements there. So it's become more commonplace, but for the longest time, it was family office held. It was smaller in scale. Hedging didn't even come up in the conversation. So how have you guys seen it? You guys are working with these groups. I just know personally from working with Rob over the years, you're working with a majority of these institutional groups already. So you have great coverage in the space. You are the go-to leader for sure. Walk me through the the path and how you guys have seen it from, from your seat. Yeah, you bet. We have seen, well, I, I guess I make a couple of observations. One, hedging activity has, has increased and probably is higher than I've ever seen it right this second. We went through a little bit of a lull when prices, you know, when crude oil, you know, spiked up last summer, but people came out of some, some really, some, I would say those companies that hedged through the pandemic survived largely because of it. And so people really understood the value of hedging. Now the price has been a bit more volatile here. I think people are getting back to that sort of core belief that, you know, running a running an ongoing hedge management program is core to their to their long-term. I don't want to say survival. It's it's to, you know, getting the returns on their investments that they expect and allow them to fund their their programs, whether that be drilling, whether that be, you know. Land purchases, whether that be buying PDP, you, you name it, you we're, we're seeing more people understand the importance of having a structured plan, you know, to to you know to run their their own internal plan. Secondly, I I think it's harder and harder to distinguish between 
you know, operators, non-op, minerals and royalties. I mean, I think you see so many of the recent acquisitions have been so focused on PDP heavy buys that more and more people are understanding the value of purchasing, producing assets, right? And and being in a in a position to and and frankly structuring their company in a way that they don't have to grow through the drill bit. Like, you know, that is that can be a risky proposition. And so minerals and royalties, non-ops more broadly are hedging at at higher and higher rates, I would say. Um, not quite to the level of your more pure play producers, but you know, the 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 sort of the, the, the core thesis of hedging that all of them, whether I'm a producer, you know, non-op or or more specifically minerals and royalties, I have a set of expenses and I I have revenue that I need to cover that and to generate not only cover the expenses, but to generate returns for for my investors, whatever they may be, debt, equity, et cetera. And so hedging is playing a critical role across you know, all parts of that, all parts of the oil and gas spectrum. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Wilson. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Farmers National Company has oil and gas experts located across the country ready to provide you unmatched convenience and service for your land management needs. Whether you're looking for turnkey management of oil and gas interests or simply looking for an advisor to help you sell or lease your minerals, Farmers National Company has you covered. Learn more about Farmers National Company's team of certified mineral managers, landmen, attorneys, and accountants by going to fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. You know, I think too, just going on this kind of recent decade plus of the mineral space growing and evolving, same with non-op, is the introduction of, of shale. You have far greater drop-offs in, in production. And uh, I'm going to generalize here. Let's call it 60% of your revenue in the life of a well coming in the first 18 months. So from timing on what the commodity is, when those wells come online, which is out of your control as a mineral and non-op investor, is huge. So if you can lower that, you know, that that volatility and lock in certain types of returns, it, it's important. I mean, just talk to people in Hainsar right now that have naked exposure. It's great. Those wells are those ducks are coming online at nine dollar gas, but not at two. You're in a lot of pain right now. And it's not like, oh, I'm gonna hold this for for 10 years and make it right if a majority of the the wells you underwrote, most of that value is going out at lower commodity prices. So it's like you said, it's I think it's really interesting how you phrased Aegis. We're helping clients protect profits. And I think in a space now that is becoming more mature. And, you know, you're really working for the investors. It's not about 
just hitting home run balls all the time. It's it's really about managing risk and making sure you're delivering for them and not overexposing them to downside risk. You know, it's really interesting you said that, Tim. And I, I'm going to throw something out here that I'm sure you know a lot of your users or your, or listeners will disagree with. But I was having a conversation with one of our customers on on Friday. And I said, look, I'll make an observation as an out, as a someone who grew up outside of the industry and and might look at this a, a little bit differently. I said, I I would argue that oil and gas broadly, regardless of which category, is the most investable industry on the planet. And they looked at me, they looked at me sideways, and I said, tell me another industry where you know how much you are going to sell next year. Right. I mean, almost nobody knows what they're going to sell next year. You have a pretty good idea what your expenses are, especially if you've managed your contracts effectively on OFS. You know, if you're if you're in some form of long term contract with OFS. And so, you know how much you're going to sell. You know what your expenses are going to be. Then the only thing you're missing is what price you're going to sell your product at. And so hedging allows you to lock in that price. And so you you can. And, and look, there's some challenges with minerals and royalties, just for some of the reasons you highlighted earlier. But when you know the amount you're going to sell and you know the price you're going to sell it for and you know your cost structure, the way you talk to investors is unlike any other business on the planet. I don't know how much we're going to sell this coming year. I hope it's a lot. I don't know. You know, Chipotle knows what they're going to sell a burrito for next year. They don't know how many they're going to sell. You know, all these businesses have a real open-ended question in, in terms of, you know, running their, their P&L or projecting their P&L. And I think oil and gas, when run properly and, and people aggressively manage, can talk about all components of the P&L in a way that no other industry can. And so I think that's, that's um, you know, if we if we approach hedging that way and get away from it being a, you know, I, I, heard, I heard a CEO recently describe hedging as gambling. And I would argue it is the exact opposite of gambling. And I just think that's a that's something we've got to do to get the messaging right in terms of what locking in or, or pre-selling your assets, pre-selling the your production for next year, what that really means. Yeah. So that that's a perfect uh parlay into my next question, which is what are the the common misconceptions or concerns you hear from minerals and non-op companies? I think on the education curve, you guys are far further along than you were years ago, but whether it's size or it's, this is like gambling, this is exposing my investors to more risk versus less. I mean, well, walk me through how the conversations typically go and the feedback and and what you guys usually say in response. Yeah, I'll hit the, the one I just raised a minute ago. We will often hear... Hedging is risky, speculative. It's gambling, you know. And and I, I worry sometimes that that's because this the word hedge is the same as hedge funds, which are which are pretty risky and designed to expose people to risk. Hedging or using swaps is the exact opposite of that, right? It's creating certainty. It's locking in and, and into a specific price. So you know, typically you know, we can walk through what that means, but most people haven't really sat down and thought about you know th- the idea that you are effectively just pre-selling your your production or, or your exposure at a fixed price. Uh, the second thing we hear a lot is that you know hedging is really just to comply with bank covenants, and that drives me a little bit crazy. You know because th- there is certainly some truth to that. Many many companies do hedge because they have to comply, but the banks are are doing what what we believe we have a better mousetrap to do now, which is effectively trying to protect their underlying investment. And so that's what hedging is all about. Now, I think they've used a blunt force instrument, this sort of 75% in value year and 50% following year and 25% the next year, because it doesn't, doesn't really take into consideration where price is and what the likely outcomes are. 
so there there are better tools to do that, and you know I hope that the the banks ad- adapt you know to that, you know because they are they have the right idea, which is protecting the investment. I think the way they're going about it, there's there's some room uh, for improvement. And then the third thing that I think we hear mostly with, with you know minerals and royalties and, and non-ops more broadly is. You know, it's harder for me to um, hedge because I don't really know that the price—I don't know the price that the operators are receiving—and um, that is that's pretty easy to cut through. You know, just looking back at some statements, you can tell pretty quickly, you know, where the exposures are. Most a lot of people get concerned about basis, what's being received, but as we look at the minerals and royalty space, we, we really see ninety percent, you know, of the risk is is driven by the core products. You know, just you know, call it call it Henry Hub. You know, it's it's not. We don't need to get overly sophisticated on basis, but a few quick minutes studying statements, you can you can see exactly where the where the operators are selling and what prices they're likely to receive. So, you know, that, I'd say those are the the three primary ones we hear, and that's the third one's obviously specifically to minerals and royalties, but you know, the other two, I, I think, we're hearing more broadly across the industry. So now, I'm sure you get this as well. You, you meet with a group. They represent a family or a group of family office, high net worth investors, and they go, we don't hedge. Our investors want pure exposure to the commodity. Sorry, no thanks. I'm curious that you've definitely (laughs) converted some of those, right? Which is always a feather in the cap for any kind of company who gets that kind of response out of the gate. But what do you say in, in in that scenario? And how do you ultimately get them to sit on your side of the table and, and see eye to eye? Yeah, I guess my my flippant response to that would be, I, I really want to meet those investors. I, I haven't met them who said, gosh, I, I underwrote this asset at $9 gas, and I'm really glad I'm exposed to the you know, $230 i am getting in the front right now. I think that's, a, that's something that we've told ourselves over time in, in the industry that our, our investors really want, want the exposure. I think they want the exposure when we expect prices going up and they want absolute protection on the downside is what they'd really say if they could if they could tell us that. But I get it, right? Every portfolio is looking for, you know, a mix of of assets that are going to be inflation hedges. Let's just let's just use that as a as a really simple example and and I, that's a fair that's a fair comment. You know, but I, I would argue that that just means you might choose to hedge a little bit less. What you don't want to do is put your investment at risk. You know, how do you ensure you can cover at a minimum any debt you might you might have on way? Let's then okay. Now, do we want to make sure we cover GNA? Do we want to make sure we cover a five percent you know return on the investment just as a as a stopgap and leave upside for the remainder of it? Those are the actions you can take when you're running a more sophisticated hedging program that say, hey, look, we know the goal we're solving for, right? Because there's a revenue target that's going to deliver all of those protection against our against any debt we may have, you know, cover GNA, cover some minimal return. And then you know, we, we can actually model different hedges that will achieve the same outcome. Our goal is simple at Aegis, hedge the least amount possible, right? To you know, to 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 meet your goals. And that is that becomes a really, you know, a really foundational piece of our conversations we have with customers where we all understand what the goals are and we're all looking for opportunities to increase our certainty towards hitting those. And and let's leave the upside anytime we can. On your hypothetical example of the investor who, you know, is at nine dollars in MCF and rides it all the way down to two bucks. Yeah, I just had uh, Darren Geiger from Cornerstone on for an episode really thoughtful mineral buyer been in the space for 20 years and they 
kind of tout themselves on understanding the macro picture and using hedging in an advantageous way to create value in their portfolio when there's these black swan events. So he talks about, uh, I believe it was Katrina, and then, you know, obviously the COVID era, you know, th things of this nature, right? Where there's severe swings, they hedged and sold out when oil was 140 back in kind of early 2010s. Can you talk to me really uh, in an ideal one? You never know where commodity prices are going. There were folks who thought it was going to go to 15 bucks an M when it was at nine. So if you were to lock in a hedge, then maybe you're underwater on your hedges because it runs up to 15, maybe. But when oil gets around 100, it's historically pretty high. Is it harder or more costly to execute and lock in hedges when prices are high? Because theoretically, you'd want to do that. You'd want to lock it in when it's super high. And then if it goes down, I mean, you're you're flush with these higher prices, but it can't be that simple. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, since I've never been involved in the mechanics of executing a, a hedging program. Sure. Yeah. Well, there, there's a, there's a lot to that, that question. And so we may want to go in a couple of different directions, but, and, and this is not going to be exactly right, but hedging costs very little is the way I would, the, the way I would frame it up in the structures that we're generally talking to our customers about. It's, effectively free. I mean, every, every bank is going to get some, you know, some cents, right? Call it a couple of cents an M, you know, 20 cents a barrel. They're, they're going to get paid something for taking the risk. But if you swap in, right, just do a swap on crude oil or, or natural gas, you're just fixing the price you're going to, you're going to sell that at, regardless of where it is, there's always a forward curve. And so you're going to be doing something that's mirroring the curve. Now, right now, crude oil is backwardated, meaning future prices are lower than current prices, but the natural gas prices are in contango. So I can sell, you know, while gas is 230-ish in the front right now, you know, it's it's 425 if you start to look out into 25 and 26. So you can actually sell your gas in 2025 and 2026 over $4 an M right now. That's a really attractive option. But the out-of-pocket expense to execute a hedge, assuming you're staying in a costless collar or swap structure, is, is really nothing. And so, you know, it's not any more expensive to hedge when prices are high than when, when prices are low. What you're really talking about is psychology, though. Who remembers all, a real long time ago, call it, you know, 24 months, uh, maybe 30 months, where people were saying, gosh, if I could just get 275 gas and, you know, $55 crude, gas subsequently goes to $9 and change and crude goes to 120 and people weren't locking it in, you know, for the long term. And that created some real interesting, some real interesting discussions, as you might imagine. But we are all in this business because we're, we're bulls, right? I mean, you wouldn't be in oil and gas if you weren't bullish the commodity price. But we have to step back and say, anytime we find ourselves saying it's different this time, we're wrong. And, you know, having the discipline to always be taking risk off the table would have paid off very well for any or any company with exposure to oil and gas prices, you know, as, as as they ramped up into the, you know, 120s for crude and $9 for gas. So it's, it's, a, it's a lesson, you know, $9 gas not coming back anytime soon. And could we see over $100 crude? Yeah, theoretically. The problem is, you know, we can all have our view on supply and demand um, in the market, and we all do. But who predicted COVID? 
You know, who predicted Biden would open up access to the SPR? You know, who predicted interest rates would rise this quickly, this fast? I think we all knew they were going to, they had to go up, but I'm not sure anybody thought this, this quickly, this fast. Who, who had Russia invading Ukraine and that that would actually be bearish prices? You know, it's like these things that we can't possibly predict, you know, that, that's where we all have to continue to step back and acknowledge we don't, we don't know everything that's going to happen. And so we've got to be prudent in managing our businesses. Well, I guess my question put another way, theoretically, gas prices go down to two bucks. Everyone should be a buyer of gas, right? It's a great opportunity. You're buying at the bottom of the market. But that's in theory, in practice, there's a bid-ass spread. And is there willing sellers on the other end willing to transact at that level? And so you you have a slowdown in deal flow, and then there's some sort of equilibrium. The market stabilizes where prices go up, and there's more willing sellers. In a hedging world, is it when prices surge? Again, I'm thinking to myself, so you're saying we're all bulls and as an industry saying, well... It's a hundred. It's different this time. It's going to stay a hundred. Is there less willing counterparts to lock in the hedges at those higher prices, or is it really a, just a psychology game? Because yeah. that's what I'm wondering. Sure, the oil and gas financial markets are incredibly deep, right? And so it is. You know, again, credit and other things aside, at an individual company level, it is not difficult to get a hedge in place. Um, regardless of price, there is always someone willing to take the other side. I mean, I always put it in quotes. I mean, I, I, you know, there's yeah. all, there are things sure. that can happen, but it is not it is not price dependent. It impacts M and A significantly. Um, to your to your point, right? This bid ask spread. Hey, gas was just at you know six dollars you know five months ago. You know, it's a two today. Surely it's coming back. Like that's a much more difficult. That's a much more difficult discussion, but the financial markets are incredibly deep. And so, you know, getting getting liquidity on, you know, swaps or cost of scholars that involve a, you know, a put and a call, that is that is not difficult regardless of price. Okay. When you're talking to a group and it's low commodity price environment and you're trying to lock it in, but there is a run, what's the concern of being underwater on your hedges? How do you manage that that fear? Yeah, you know, that's now we're getting a little bit into where where commodities are. And and if I were, I think it's hard. I'll just use it some real specific examples. I think it's hard to hedge gas in the front right now, which meaning it over, call it over the next six months. You know, if you're if you're selling your gas at you know two dollars and thirty cents, that well, although that may work for most of your dry gas players, you're start, still probably getting a pretty good return there. And so, you know, we're not really pointing our customers a lot to you know hedging their gas in the front, but we are pointing to 2025 and 2026 where, hey, we can lock in over $4 an M on gas right now. That's a really good return. And could gas go higher than that? Yes, you know, there, there's a case, but it's assuming a lot of LNG is coming online as a, as a for instance, right? So there's this big wall of LNG that's theoretically is gonna be a big demand driver. Anything goes wrong though with that, and I, it seems like every LNG project we've ever looked at has had something go wrong, then there's a lot of risk to the downside there. So are you comfortable, you know, with four dollars and twenty-five cents in you know cow twenty-five for for your gas? You know that that's a discussion everyone should be having right now and taking that risk off the table. So it's a little bit that the fun part about hedging is 
being able to look at different tenors. You know, it's not all about hedging your production for next month. In fact, it's probably too late to do that. It's about looking out into the future and seeing what what's likely to happen. And you can have a bias. You can be, you know, you can skew bullish or skew bearish. But, you know, we're trying to take a bit of the emotion out of it and saying, where do you generate the returns that, that you're comfortable with? And, and if if these prices give you that opportunity, we would say you need to take some of that risk off the table. You don't have to take it all off, but you need to be taking some. Hey, guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Your property is your legacy, so you should only leave it in the hands of a land management company who has a legacy of its own. If you own oil and gas interests or act as a fiduciary for those who do, you can find a long-term partner at Farmers National Company, who, since 1929, has taken great pride in helping clients maximize the benefits of property ownership by providing turnkey management services and by working alongside them through generational transfers of specialized assets such as oil and gas interests and farmland. To learn more, visit fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B Energy to Business on Apple and Spotify Podcasts where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Yeah, I naively didn't think about it like that. I, I kind of thought it was kind of all or nothing. You you hedge your entire portfolio, but course you can can hedge selectively into the future just where it makes sense and that's where you guys come in to make those recommendations it's your your everyday right right let's talk about something that's very relevant to minerals and non-op because it's a much smaller scale than the upstream space i always tell people when you see a billion dollar m&a transaction announced in upstream the equivalent of that is a hundred million in minerals a hundred million dollar minerals deal is big so the scale is significantly smaller. What is the minimum scale needed to implement a hedging program? What is that process like? Walk me through everything. If it's production volumes, number of wells, I don't know. What are all the moving parts? I'll let you break it down. <laughs> sure. Look, I think we would generally look at it on some production thresholds is, is or exposure thresholds. Call it three or 400 barrels a day. Call it 2 million gas a day. It's going to be kind of the right you know, generally the right time where there's there's the ability to hedge, right? You know, you're going to have, you know, be able to get some sufficient credit. You know, you're going to have some, you know, production that that that's worth, you know, I'd say worth the, you know, time and, and effort. 
you know, there are a couple of criteria. You do have to be an eligible contract participant called ECP. Um, that's going to mean you need 10 million in assets or a million dollars net worth. Not unlike looking at a, are you a sophisticated investor to be an LP, you know, inside of a private equity firm. And so you know, there are some things that the CFTC, you know, requires to, for you to enter into those kinds of contracts. Um, the is the the is are are funny funny things, and so you know, for those in the audience that that don't know it is is this effectively the the contract that's set up because everything is done bilaterally in the business that we're in. Um, these are not exchange traded products where you can just go out and buy buy a you know buy a call or you know buy a put or you know sell a call. You know these are direct transactions between the person or company with exposure to the commodity price and a specific bank. And that is that governs how that contract will work. With all due respect to all my lawyer friends in the business, you know, is this don't change that much when you're negotiating them? I see a lot of people spend a lot of time, you know, negotiating is this. There's probably three or four key terms that really deserve some, some attention. You know, so that process can go as quickly or as slowly as as you might like. But I, I would say spending less time on ISDA and more time on the hedge strategy is the is the appropriate split. So you, know, you can see, a, a real, you know, and we have some people, Tim, by the way, who who will hire us in advance of doing a transaction simply to look at what the opportunities are, look at existing hedge books to the extent there are some in place, et cetera, knowing that they are headed towards the acquisition or, or will in the next, whether it be 90 days or 180 days. And so we're working with a number of companies at any given time who are still you know, looking for assets today. Well, that, that's important, right? And, and getting the ISDA set up, it's not like closing a transaction or you decide tomorrow I want to hedge. It's not like that. It's not the click of a finger, right? So you, you got developing it. a relationship and playing long-term baseball is your preference and, and the right way to do it. Yeah. The time you need to hedge is too late, right? Like if you're not, if you're just working on your program when you need to hedge, it's too late. The market will have gotten away from you and you know, you won't, you won't be in a, and so the interest rates are a great example right now. And, you know, we do some work in the interest rate space. Like it's too late to hedge interest rates. That, that would be our, our point of view. Hedging interest rates should have been a year ago, looking out into the future. And companies did incredibly well when they when they bought, you know, when they put caps in place on on their you know revolving you know sort of facilities. And um, you know, it's too late. It's too expensive to try to hedge rates at this point because everybody knows they're <laughs> knows they're higher, they're likely to go up from here, et cetera. So you need to really be thinking about your hedge program, you know, when you don't need to hedge. Phenomenal. Speaking of interest rates, let's talk about debt. Debt has gotten expensive. That impacts, you know, a, a lot of debt covenants require hedging. In minerals, the use of debt is needs to be considered and you need to do it very prudently if you need it, just because of, you know, you're looking at mid-teens returns for minerals and you got 9-10% debt. You know, it's it's a real discussion on you know, do you drop that altogether, right? And pursue an all cash equity strategy. But what is the balance between hedging and debt? Are there some general rules of how you guys looking at in this environment? Um, over to you. Yeah, I don't know that there's an exact, you know, that there's an exact ratio that that I would be thinking about in terms of how to how to use hedging against debt. 
But I, we always draw at the bottom of the pyramid on what you need to be considering um, in a hedge program. And the first tier of that is, is your, you know, interest expense or coverage. And so, you know, at, at a minimum that can't go around. I always talk about, you know, interest expense coverage and then, you know, GNA and, and, and then returns. And then, you know, you, you know, start to get into, Hey, I'm going to bring an operating company in and fund a drilling program. Like all those things are in a stack as we think about what goals you'd be hedging to. And so we know debt plays a huge role in the oil and gas business. I mean, that's the only way to, to lever properly to get the, get the right returns. And, you know, so we obviously, you know, are big supporters of that and just, you know, put that as the first thing in the stack that needs to, that needs to be covered. What kind of requirements are you seeing from a hedging perspective from banks and are they evolving and changing? Yeah, you know, the, the the rule of thumb had always been, you know, like we talked about earlier, you know, hedge 75% of your production and the you know, or exposure in the in the current year, if you will. So called the rest of 2023 in this in this example, 50% in Cal 24 and 25% in Cal 25. So that, that was sort of the rule of thumb. And a lot of bank covenants will be set up like that. There is room for an increasingly sophisticated conversation, is what I would say. As we're as we're talking to more and more banks in conjunction with our with our customers, we're able to show a range of outcomes. I mean, the, the nice thing about oil and gas, this deep liquidity in the space means that the millions of people every day are voting on the likelihood of future price outcomes. That's where the options market lives. And so there, there's a cone of that, that gets wider and wider as you get further out on where people believe price is going to be. And that's a that's a pretty good way to think about your confidence intervals and, and achieving you know, certain prices. And so our ability to sit down and have that conversation jointly with our customer and their bank to talk about you know how they may approach debt and the use of hedging to protect that, you know, we can really talk about the likelihood of achieving different revenue thresholds. Um, and that becomes a, a much more sophisticated conversation that that says, hey, at these kinds of prices, we're going to be hedging this this amount. And as this happens, we're going to do this amount rather than having these rote 75, 50, 25 covenants. But I don't see any way that banks are you know, over the long term or obviously they're getting much more. I was going to say stingy. I'll say much more restrictive. Right? Restrictive. There you go on their on their capital. So that that's going to happen, and I I don't see that hedging is going to go away. And I I think the private credit private debt markets are going to become increasingly big contributor of capital to the business, and those those are going to come with hedging requirements as well. Um, and so having you know having someone alongside you to make sure that you're you know signing up for the right for things that make sense for the business. I, you know, obviously I'm incredibly biased when I say that, but I do think it just changes the nature of the conversation. And then on the the conversation of debt, asset-backed securitization has become a product that is more and more in vogue in recent years. Hedging is a huge part of that. It's well, we're only, it's very much a credit product versus, well, I just had Donovan Ventures on and Matt Brogdon uh, from Kenner Fitzgerald's coming on shortly. So, you know, I, I kind of threw the question out to them. Would you look at ABS as a credit and yield product, number one, an oil and gas product, number two? And they chuckled and said, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's what that's what these products are for. You're going to yield investors. And a lot of times you'll have the credit arms of large institutional investors looking at ABS and their upstream counter or their private equity counterparts are exiting oil and gas for ESG purposes. So very much a different world. But 
Have you guys been involved in any of the ABS deals and, and what are your thoughts from a hedging perspective there and how that's evolved? A lot. We've been involved in a lot of ABS deals. And yes, I think it gets back to the point earlier about this being a very investable space. If you know your expense, you know your you know what how much you're going to sell next year and you can lock in your price. I mean, that's effectively what an ABS does, right? It's creating a, I mean, I don't want to say it's a bond, it's not, but it, it operates just like a bond. And so you know, hedging is a huge component of that, as it should be, because you're fixing the price that you're going to be paid for each molecule. And so we're seeing, you know, ABS deals where up to, well, probably on average, 85% of future production is hedged because you're just taking the, the likelihood of something bad happening, you know, off the table. And I believe that number would go to 100 if we had absolute certainty that there wouldn't be freeze offs or shut ins or, you know, various things that, you know, happen that are outside of the control of the operator uh, on occasion. But yes, I think you asked the question exactly right, which is this to us is a yield product and it's a really safe one. Um, and so I do think it's a, it's an oil and gas play second and uh, yeah, hedging's playing a big role in it. Okay. Awesome. So closing out the episode here, I want to talk about hedging and it's, in his role in transactions. Um, and there's a there's a number of things that go into this. You know, I I, I kind of thought, you know, me personally, if I have a, a hedging program in place and now someone wants to acquire me, does someone do I have to unwind that? Is that is that a cost I do? do does that hedging program get acquired? At high level, can a hedging program complicate a sale? Just let's start start there. So I would say in most simple terms, no, it should have no impact on the sale uh, whatsoever. So because you know, generally in almost every case, and I can think of only a couple of cases where this wasn't true, when an asset was acquired, where there were hedges on it, the, those positions are unwound coincident with the sale. So in other words, the, few, the the buyer of the business is not going to give you any credit nor penalty you know, for the hedge book as it exists because it's going to be unwound. Sometimes you're going to make money on that unwinding because your hedges are in the money. Sometimes you're going to pay the bank from the proceeds of the sale because your hedge program is 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 under well is not making money a negative mark to market you know just to say the more technical term and so it really should not complicate the sale now again this is going to sound biased to us having a a hedge advisor that knows you know where price should be and what fair value is for that and negotiating you know that that unwind you know, with the bank is very important but the the process to do it is not terribly complicated is it mandatory to unwind it? Or if the hedge is your mark to market out of the money, it, I would, can I just continue it and hope for price recovery? Or do I have to pay the bank out of the proceeds of the sale? I would not want to, given you don't have production going forward, you know, you're going to have wrong way risk in a big way. If you don't unwind it, you really need, you know, if you're going to continue to ride the, that head, that hedge going forward without offsetting production against it, you know, you could set yourself up. So in theory, could you do it? Yes. Contractually, probably not. And just practically, you would not want to do that. If you're selling the asset and you have a negative mark to market, it's best to just take your take your loss right there because you're not going to make the sale unless all the economics work. 
So 99 out of 100 times you are going to want to exit that. And the, and in some cases, you know, it, it is possible. And I said that I've only seen a couple of times since I've been here where people will novate those hedges to to the buyer. That's more complicated. It can get expensive and requires a, a number of stars to align, like having a common you know bank group, et cetera. So we just don't see many situations where that makes sense. So yeah, I would so unwind. Unwind is the smart play almost always. Got it. Now, let's say I'm representing a minerals group. I'm looking to do a large transaction. These things are usually marketed processes. You know, the diligence takes quite a bit of time, you know, underwriting the deal and going through the two to three month, even longer process in the data room takes time. I'm assuming having an engagement and, and talking with an advisor like Aegis is essential because the hedges get locked in at the moment, you know, the deal is closed, right? It's not like, okay, it's April and this is this is strip and this is our underwriting today. We're going to close in 90 days, but then you're constantly reevaluating your underwriting based on what you can lock your hedges in, right? I mean, is it a walk through that dance? Because that that's interesting and, and it matters. I mean, if you're trying to lock in a certain type of return and there's volatility, you know, that day-to-day heartburn can be real, no? Well, a hundred percent. In fact, we've seen some really large transactions that have that have been pulled back because the commodity price changed in such a short period of time. And in those cases, or in some cases, and some specifically documented, you know, people took their hedges off at PSA. It was a condition of the PSA. Then prices went went south. And the deal got called off, and the seller uh, was left without a hedged, you know, without a hedged position. That's obviously incredibly dangerous, and a lot of a lot of value gets gets lost there. There are some structures at PSA that to balance that, and and look, a lot of people don't don't like buying puts, but you know there are we're seeing more and more what's called deferred puts um, being put in place at PSA. So it does protect to the downside. The good news is that the cost of that, you know, gets spread out, you know, to, to settlement of those hedges so that, you know, you're not paying the full premium of those puts up front because a put effectively puts a floor in um, is, the, is the simple way to think about it. We typically never talk about swaptions, you know, to our to our customers, but they can be a very effective tool in bridging that PSA to close because it does give you it does set a, a price floor and gives you still the option to to exercise that you know, that position if you choose. So if the deal were not to, to you know close, you know, there's a way to exit, et cetera. So there's some unique structures um, that can be put in place to bridge that gap between PSA and close. There's just, a, to your point, a lot of risk, you know, if, if you've got, you know, 60, 90, 120 days between, you know, PSA and close. And we used, uh, in terms of scale, we use, from a minerals not up perspective, not using production as a metric, let's use transaction size. What is a general transaction size you think is a minimum to start thinking about hedging, would you say? Oh, um, gosh, I, I would think. Tim, you know, we're at $5 million transaction. I think there's there's room for hedging. I mean, all, all that's going to be a bit commodity price dependent, uh, but it doesn't have to be that big, especially if, you know, if there's an operator in sight or rigs nearby and there may be drilling activity in the near term, et cetera. There's, um, I would say, good to have a conversation, whether it be with us or someone like us, uh, always worth having that discussion up front because there, there are likely to be some opportunities you want to consider. And it won't cost you anything to have a have a first conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, that's lower than I would have thought. It's all, you know, how PDP heavy is the deal, right? So there's some nuance there, but, you know, using 5 million as a benchmark and up, that opens up discussions for a lot of folks, right? And we recently, the PDP deal, you know, with a couple hundred barrels a day, there was even there was even south of that that um, did make sense to do do some hedging on. So, you know, everything's going to be just is a bit deal dependent and, you know, always worth the conversation. Phenomenal. Well, Brian, uh, thanks for coming on. It was a great discussion. We've touched on this throughout the episode, but let's kind of bring it all together. What are the scenarios that folks should consider reaching out to you guys? How do they do that to get the dialogue started? When should they do that? Over to you, whether it's they reach a certain AUM, you know, they're looking at transactions, they want to get an ISDA set up, just folks who are listening, who are intrigued by this, that haven't considered hedging or looked at it briefly, were too small, now they want to revisit, how can they reach out to your team and, and get that conversation started? You bet. So a lot of things that, that may trigger the discussion, I think you hit on the, the, a really key one. When you start to think about a transaction, that's a great time to engage and just talk about what you're looking at. Is it PDP heavy? Is it a land buy? Are there rigs nearby? You know, what, what are we seeing on basis? I mean, there's all sorts of good discussion that can be had just, you know, as you're as you're exploring, you know, different acquisitions. Every basin has different dynamics. You know, you know there, there's just a, a lot to discuss. We're seeing larger and larger, obviously, mineral and royalties coming in and non-ops. That, that just have massive AUM. And, and we're seeing most of them having a having hedge programs in place right now. And so if you find yourself, and I, I don't want to necessarily put a number on it, but you know, you have more more AUM than you you probably ever thought, it's good time to be to be talking about hedging. And if you're considering a sale in the next call it 12 months, there may be some things you can do. Actually, there are some things you can do to shore up some value heading into that into that sale, you know, that, that puts you in a position to, I would say, to have more leverage, maybe the wrong word, but I, I'm sure people will appreciate that, where you're not for, you're not in a position where you have to sell. I think giving people optionality when they go into a process is really key. And if you know what your longer term, you know, outcome can be, because you've already, you know, pre-sold your, uh, your exposures, then um, you're going to have a lot more optionality and a lot more swagger in the in the sale process. And negotiating leverage is optionality. That's all it is. <laughs> you know, anyone who just looks someone straight in the eye and has, you know, if, if they get the wrong answer and they're dead, I mean, that's just, that's not really how it works. It's, you can posture a stronger position when you have other options, you don't have to sell, et cetera, et cetera. Well, great. Listen, thanks again for coming on. You guys have continued to grow. Glad to to see it. And you are supporting a lot of the firms that have been on this podcast and that are listening. And so on behalf of the minerals and the nano space, thanks for what you guys are doing. And um, for those listening who haven't explored it, uh, I hope they can reach out and realize some value and you guys can create some new partnerships. So thanks again for coming on, Brian. Thanks, Tim. Really appreciate everything you're doing for the industry. And uh, yeah, we're really proud to serve so many of your your customers. They are the only reason we exist and just really proud to be working alongside them. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Middles and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments, nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.